Hey everybody, welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. Today I'm talking with Dara Page, fashion designer with House Page. House Page is the brainchild of award-winning luxury tomboy designers Dara and Nash Page. They're a husband and wife team that met at NC State and have carried their love of the craft forward with small batch, sustainable designs created in Raleigh and sourced in the Carolinas. They believe in creating and curating beautiful clothing people will feel good about wearing. Today, Dara Page is on the mic with me, although you'll hear her ask questions to Nash, who was also in the room with us while we recorded. Dara grew up in the fashion apparel industry. Her family ran a specialty luxury women's wear store called Brown Hills and remains connected to the apparel trade. In the past two decades, she's combined working for luxury high-end shops like Hertzberg Furs, Stitch Golf, and Tech Shop RDU with larger retail giants such as JCPenney, Belks, Steinmart, Elsie Industries, and the NFL. She now works full-time as a fashion designer for House Page. You can find her most days creating new items or helping supervise small curated batches of high-end pieces inspired by Carolina Masters. Her taste is a mix of contemporary, ready-to-wear, and unique art-to-wear pieces. Listen up in this episode as we talk about what inspired Dara to start House Page, what inspires her fashion design and collections, and how she is inspired to give back to her community. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Dara. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Let's talk about House Page. Awesome. House Page was launched in 2013. What inspired you to start your own business? Prior to 2013, the company existed on the books as Lee Sachet, but um, I had been working in retail and I had won all the awards that you could win at the time. And I was working in Belks and I don't know, I live in the South and it was hard for a woman to get promoted up into management. And one of the guys, um, Cesar LaMonica, he's not here. Um, he was working at Belks at Crabtree. And he sat me down and he's like, look, you know, this internet thing's going to take off and, you know, you're really bright and really smart and, you know, maybe you could go start your own thing and go into manufacturing. And I was like, wow, that was very, cause he was this guy I really respected. He was the, you know, it was a $90 million a year store. And it's kind of backtaking as a woman to hear that, you know, this is back like 2008, 2009, when the crash was that, you know, Hey, you know, if you really want to keep growing and, you know, I was going to have to launch, so which was really hard. Uh, I talked to a bunch of investors. Um, they were not interested in a fashion company. So uh, we actually, I liquidated my 401k. Wow. <laughs> and uh, started. <laughs> and Tech Shop RDU at the time, um, it was a makerspace, which kind of like as one door closes, another door opened. And I basically went from retail to manufacturing, which was the back end. And uh, I had space under the stairs for like $10 a month. And then it became part of a room that I shared and then a full room. And uh, I met my husband along the way. And then we got married. And uh, we decided to change our name to House Page. And uh, that's where we started. So um, 
we do fashion, luxury fashion production now. So, And so that was five-ish years ago. Mm-hmm. How has the company changed over the last five years or evolved? <laughs> <laughs> I would say that it's gr- it's grown. Um, when we first got married, we still had a tiny room and we were out of our one-bedroom apartment. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, we now have our own shop and we produce our own line. And when we got started, you know, when you're first starting off and you don't have a lot of money, you're kind of scrambling it all together, you know, even with a, a little bit of a safety net. And now as it's evolved, you know, you have social proof, you've sold, you have stores. Um, we're in about 200, probably working on like 200 plus stores. And as you prove that your items are sellable and you start making money, then you start having options that, you know, when you're really, really broken, <laughs> you don't have those. I mean, there's, there's stuff that, you know, I look back on it and, you know, you make ni- like a hundred designs or something and like 99 of them don't work. And, but the ones that do, they grow. Mm-hmm. So. Did you have a lot of confidence? I'm thinking I'm thinking about this moment, right? When somebody basically tells you if you don't if you don't start your own thing, it's going to be hard for you to get ahead and in order to start your own, you have to plow a whole bunch of money into something that's very uncertain. Where did you Well, well, okay, my entire 401k had like 4 grand in it. Okay, so okay. it's not like, <laughs> Um, you know, this was in the middle of 2008, 2009 and my grandfather had been a tailor and he had run a luxury women's line. I basically at that point in time, because you're young and dumb and I had nothing to lose. And I said, you know, this is the bottom of the crash. Belks like, like had a discussion, which has since come out where they had to lay off basically the top 20% of their sales force. If I had thought about it, like you and I now like, Mm -hmm. like looking at it, I would, I would have never had the courage. But at the time I was like, well, what's the worst thing? (laughs) And that cut like, but there was some really awful stuff that, you know, um, not everything works in design and as an artist or, you know, creation is, is messy. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, I don't know. Do you want me to tell you? Yeah, I would love a story. (laughs) If you have a story, I'd love to hear one. Oh gosh. Probably the first year or two at tech shop, it did not necessarily go well. It was a very male dominated field. And I came in and I was the only like one of the two or three, maybe three female artists in the building. Very small. Um, So I was one of the only women. I was one of the only female business. And I would go to like interviews, like the news and observer came out and uh, they sat us all down in a circle and every single other person was a guy and he ended up in the newspaper article and I was the only woman. So I didn't get in. (laughs) Wow. So I really got frustrated, and then I had LC Industries, which was up the street, hired me to do a bunch of their design work, and I was working, and I started getting promoted up, and the design started selling. And I was doing military. I didn't know anything about military wear, but I could look at anything because my grandfather was a tailor and make the designs, and it started selling. And I think we landed a couple big contracts for the FBI, and um, then it, they started. I started getting poached. <laughs> to design products that sold. And that was kind of the turning point where like the money was what changed the conversation because people don't necessarily are not necessarily in the South interested in talking to women necessarily about design or product development. And it can be hard to get funding. Um, Mm. 
talk to a bunch of like the small business association and I never could get any real traction on that. But when I sold, when I first started getting orders and um, that Christmas LC Industries, was that 2014? 13. Yeah, probably. They had on record the highest any manager, plant manager had ever been paid in the U.S. plus bonus. And he got like a $1.6 million bonus. And every person in the director lot got bought themselves a Humvee for Christmas. So like money talked in a conversation in which I had had a very hard time the first couple of years because I come from retail. I come into manufacturing um, and what changed was my design sold. And um, until you had social proof, I couldn't, like, it was very hard. But as soon as you had it, it started changing the conversation. Hmm. And it's still hard. People, st- it's still hard as a woman sometimes, you know, things have changed. And politically, things sometimes have not. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so doing changed the conversation. Doing right? changed the conversation. Yeah. So the aesthetic for house page is luxury tomboy. Yeah. What are the features of that? I can use my imagination to think about <laughs> what that means for me, but what does it mean to you? Um, well, to me, my grandfather was a tailor and he did high-end women's wear. And um, for me, that was always very appealing because you can put someone in clothing, especially, you know, like casually we're dressing, but uh, dressing well for a woman opens a lot of doors. Mm. Uh, really a lot of doors. I once had a manager tell me, and this is not clothing, but, and I, sadly, my hands look like I work in a shop now, which is true, but um, that a lot of managers and people who are bankers, which I didn't know when I was trying to go out and scramble money, but um, they'll decide if they're going to pass a client and invest on them if they have a manicure or not. So it's a good, solid French manicure on a woman. Like, but clothing does that where nobody ever tells you the rules um, so that was what I started. And now we curate like things that I see that I think, well, if a woman bought that, that would really help her, hmm. you know, like a little blue around the face or um, white, you'll see like that will help. Like when I was working in sales for a woman, if you wear blue or white around your face, you tend to get 60% more in sales for a day. Wow. So- <laughs> I had no idea. Okay. Yeah. Well, it was, re- well, I was, I was like, you know, in college and starving and had to pay my bills. So I was like, I'm going to try whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, so now it's very curated things that are trying to help women be successful. It often pulls from Carolina heritage. Um, in the spring we'll be doing some stuff with history museum and, um, kind of like cherry picking the best of the best, hmm. but I'm, I'm not a super girly girl. So like, I'm doing a lot of tailoring for spring and like women's suiting power suiting would be the next kind of step. And, you know, that is what I like, Mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily like, I don't know that I ever go to a country club ball or very chill artist person. (laughs) Right. Right. What are you proudest of thus far? If you look back at the last five years. So I was working in the factories and doing, we were more of a production house where you could hire us and we design whatever. And uh, last year I was like, like I wanted to do a clothing one that was sustainable fashion. And I didn't have an in because that's very hard because everybody talks about sustainable fashion, but um, clothing and fashion and creation is a wasteful process. Like, the average factory in Charlotte or Gastonia um, 
you know, might take away a 18-wheeler of fabric scraps to the dump every day, which is kind of like, or once a week, which is a lot of fabric if you think about it. And I also wanted to do something that fit real women's body types. Um, most women aren't tall, leggy supermodels in New York. I like tall, leggy supermodels, but um, we're doing stuff for Stein Martin Macy's and the average woman is a 14, 16. And I said, I'm going to do a real collection. I'm going to put real women on the runway. I'm going to do it sustainably and I'm going to do Carolina textiles and I basically got the, you're crazy. Because <laughs> if you look at New York, you know, that's nothing that's in New York. And um, I picked, like, Nash and I talked, and we picked women that inspired us, and they came back again this year. And, uh, you know, I put them on the runway. I put sustainable clothing, fashion, and walked it on a runway. And it sold in, like, three days. Mm. And then this year, New York, one of the top buyer offices called us up, and we're like, we want to carry you. And that has been interesting because no one – believe that you could put real women on a runway that, you know, aren't starving in 18 and it would sell. And this is again with the social proof where selling was what changed the conversation. Right. But nobody wants to hear it until it sells. <laughs> so I want to talk about sustainable fashion. Because okay. I don't think I completely understand what it means. You mentioned the fabric scraps and just the wastefulness of the extra piece, but is, are there other elements to this? There are, you know, and actually that's an ongoing conversation in the fashion industry. You've really kind of hit on one of the buttons in that sustainable fashion means different things to different people. And you've, I mean, you've got it. And um, the biggest starting point normally is either fabric because it's so obvious uh, labor. Are you paying your people living wage? Um, and then it gets into, you know, dying and different polluting the environment, which is kind of a slippery slope and people attack it in different ways. Mm -hmm. For us, um, we decided that it was going to be fabric and paying our people a living wage. And uh, we use local mills that we know where the fabric source from here in the Carolinas. So I've interviewed them. I don't necessarily die by, <laughs> like I've tried dyeing everything by hand and we have a shop corgi, and he likes dye bats. <laughs> and so, was that that was that was being human? That was last year. He dyed the whole shop blue, right? Last year. Ah. So while we were doing this collection, because I was going to hand dye everything, because just extra, and I've decided that's unnecessary in the future. We have a corgi, and he's about sixteen to eighteen inches tall, and he got into all our dye vats of blue indigo because I was oh like Carolyn. So my whole house was blue from about 14 inches down <laughs> in little paw prints. <laughs> so um, so since then, we've gone to using sustainable mills, and I let them do the dyeing. Um, and we do, you know, the cut and sew, and then have paying people a living wage. So, And is that very challenging, just, just doing those two things? It's enough. To be honest with you, I'm still trying to figure out the 100% zero waste when we first got started, we recycled all of it into like mulch for the garden. And um, that's was okay. And it still works. But this year we've started um, with the sewing guild, we take because some of the fabric scraps are like bigger and could be turned into like pieces of garments. We with the guild, we do sewing acts of kindness. And once a quarter, we get together and we make like small items for local charities. Mm. And that has been really fun. I don't think that I don't know anybody else doing that. That's not to say it, it doesn't exist. But um, this month, we'll do I think about 3500 pieces for a quarter. Um, we did 
cancer port pillows, which are like when you get chemotherapy or breast cancer and both Nash and I have grandmothers who died of cancer, they put in a, a like a port mm-hmm. thing and um, where the seatbelt goes and it's very painful. And so the cancer society has asked for these little tiny port pillows that go over and I thought it was precious. That's a wonderful idea. Yeah. 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 So we did that. We did it with Meredith College and the LGBTQ Wobat is how it's actually pronounced, right? Yeah. Um, in downtown Raleigh, and we made um, that will be Wednesday, and that was pretty cool. And then we also did um, for Smith Elementary, um, they there's been a forty percent increase in Raleigh of homeless children due to the political um, changes. There's been a lot of budget slashing, and um, we made a bunch of different items that the school counselors requested. Hmm. Uh, the most popular was pencil cases, um, and we'll probably do that again next year. Oh, that's a wonderful use it's for, the, for the extras, too. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of great aspects yes, of that. Please, like, and we're, like, the Guild is continuing every quarter. So if you know of a charity or normally it's small items, like, I would love to do, or I'll put my hope in this, I would mm-hmm. love to do a cat or a dog one next because I think, like, cat or dog toys would be perfect mm-hmm. for scrap fabric. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I bet I bet you can find a partner in that. I I've been talking to the SPCA um and that would be my ideal partner, but mm-hmm. I would love to do like maybe a cat fostering or anyway, something fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, so we look back a little bit. <laughs> okay. Let's look forward now. Okay. Where would you like to take House Page or where would you like it to take you? Honestly, a lot of it comes from my inspiration. Um, um, Alabama Chanin, who and uh, Diane von Furstenberg are two famous women designers that I, they're older, um, probably in their 60s, uh, maybe 70s. I won't, I won't out them. <laughs> <laughs> but they use fashion to kind of revitalize the area and the towns that they lived in. And that's pretty inspiring to me. Like that would be like long term. I mean, like maybe the next step would be to open a store. But really, that's what I'm aiming for is a positive impact where we live. Mm -hmm. And how do you do that? You know, trying stuff. I mean, I don't think I've got it figured out. I mean, what have you? I don't know. It sounds so. It sounds like this uh, SparkCon fashion thing. That's part of it, right? Is is using local people to as inspiration? Yeah, using local people, using local resources. Uh Um, You know, we source our fabric locally in the Carolinas. Mm -hmm. We use local Carolina people who cut and sew everything. Um, A lot of the emphasis is local because we live here. I could talk about France or Germany and they're perfectly lovely places, but this is where I live. And if I'm going to make an impact somewhere, mm-hmm. I think here is a good place to start. Right. Right. And you've mentioned this a little bit, but I just want to underline this because I think it's a really <laughs> uh, wonderful feature of the work that you do. And that, that is that you, you strive to give back mm. uh, a percentage of your profits to the community Via local organizations, yeah. you mentioned some of these, like, um, apparel, textile, mastermind group at Art Space, Sewing Acts mm-hmm. of Kindness with Raleigh Chapter of the American Sewing Guild and Raleigh Little Theater. 
You also have a podcast. You have a YouTube channel. <laughs> oh, those are fun things. <laughs> yeah. But I have to, I'm going to just give a shout out to the YouTube channel because I know nothing about, as I mentioned before we started this, I have know nothing about the work that you do. So oh, I was gosh. doing a little bit of binging of your YouTube channel and I found it very educational. So really? Well, yeah, that's great. absolutely. So all of the things I just mentioned are ways that you do give back to your community. And I always find it interesting when fledgling businesses make this a priority because mm. we think usually the first zero to even 10 years, that's when things are really, really tough before people are well established. And to make a priority to give back when you're just starting out yourself, mm -hmm. I think is just a really generous act. So say some more about why oh, this is important to you. Well, to be honest with you, um, a lot of it actually probably comes with from my mom, who um, she, I think I mentioned it, but she was actually a fine artist and um, she gives 10% back locally. And I, there's kind of a Michael Jordan joke where he was starting out and he figured he was half as good as his older brother. So he <laughs> said, I'll do hat like that's where his t-shirt and I said well I don't know if I'll ever you know my mom is really good and she's won a bunch of awards as a writer and all this kind of stuff and I'm like I could do half mm -hmm. and so she was in Raleigh she's since moved to Charlotte and she now teaches at Piedmont Community College but um she was involved um at the Barbie school and did um she would paint murals in like wealthy homes and businesses but she also downtown Raleigh there was this kind of really ghetto section of town. <laughs> it was called Historic Oakwood back in like the 1980s. And I was a kid there and we lived there and my mom was kind of hippie. And she would, there was a, some other hippie moms and they got together and there was the school that they kind of helped found called the Barbie School. And it was a place where kids who were low income or single moms or whatever, if they needed somewhere to have their kids, they could send their kids and they could get educated. And of all the things that she's done since that would be the thing that I've seen. It's most meaningful. Like downtown Oakwood has been revitalized. Most of the kids that they taught have actually escaped and mm -hmm. gone on. I don't know if I'll have that kind of impact in my life. Like, you know, we're talking and, you know, she's in her. <clears throat> actually, I'm not outing my mother on public right, right, radio. Right. <laughs> um, my mother is the next generation up and I will right. not tell you because I am. But, um, you know. I would hope that 20 or 30 years from now that, you know, when the next set is coming along, that they will have that story. Mm -hmm. um, and so mindfully, I've tried to pick the things that she did that really made a difference for education, which um, art space um, was right where she had her studio. And they're really known for positively impacting artists and designers. Um, they've been around for 30 years. If you're in the triangle, you should come hang out some yeah. Thursday um, maybe with the kids. <laughs> um, it is kid-friendly. And uh, they have helped a number of artists get started in their career and fantastic. The Sewing Guild is what has helped me in my career. A lot of masters of fashion and um, design give back for free there, <laughs> which, like, they'll be, like, you know, a pattern maker who runs like BCBG, who she's, she's running a hundred million dollar plus a year company and she'll come talk for free. And mm. I was just like blown away. And uh, then Raleigh Little Theater. I love theater. It's kind of my, like my chocolate junk because, you know, it doesn't really pay the bills, but gosh, it feeds my soul. Mm -hmm. And um, there's some really great theaters in Raleigh, but my favorite is Raleigh Little Theater. 
and I, I grew up historic Oakwood is right near there. And, um, they have, uh, they still to this day, actually, the first two dress rehearsals, they give away tickets to the community and anybody can walk in, even a kid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, the actors and actresses there are known for giving out tickets. And Ash and I have tried it for years for all the kids shows. And the reason is when my parents grew up and my mom left, they went through a really crappy divorce and uh, nobody in the... <laughs> Nobody in Raleigh really was talking at the time, and I felt pretty junky, and I had a, an actor walk up, and he's, he was playing the Pirates of Penzance, and I think it was some ensemble. I don't even know that he had a great, but he's like, here, have a ticket, come see the show, and um, then all the adults started talking to my brother and I again, and um, it was a very small act for him. I, I don't think that he would ever, I meant nothing to him. He got the tickets for free. It was theater. But as a child at the time, going through a really miserable time, it was incredibly insightful to my brother and I, and just really positive theater effect. So um, today, I try and hand out the tickets. Yes. <laughs> like, I'm the adult now. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, I honestly, if you're in theater or interested in theater, um, they're one of the finest theater institutions. Um, maybe they don't have the biggest budget. But I do think they have some of the biggest hearts. Mm, that's a great recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> I, if, if you would like to volunteer, uh, they have a free website where you can just sign up and do work calls. So, oh, nice. Yeah, I know a lot of people that, you know, kids that grew up in the area in Raleigh that, um, you know, they positively, their education, their mission is education giving back to the community and um, volunteerism. And I really feel like they take that literally. So I want to pivot a little bit because I want to <laughs> dig into what inspires you as a designer. And again, you mentioned a couple of these things, but I want to talk more about some of your collections and kind of what turned you on here. <laughs> I come from a design artist background, so I always have ideas kicking around and it's more like throwing stuff away like no no you cannot make that like I haven't my husband has firmly told me no more hobbies yeah. <laughs> but the ones that are that are meaningful that the designs do well are the ones that like reach across the table and talk to somebody else um fashion is something you wear and it you know, it's not like in an art museum where it sits on, a, you know, on a table or a wall and people sit back and they say, how does that make me feel like fashion? It touches you, like physically touches you, like you wear it for long periods of time, maybe years. And uh, I feel like that's a very personal and very deep, ex like art experience because it's art to wear. I think that the designs that have said something to someone else have been better. It's design and art at the same time. <laughs> so do you start with fabric or do you look at other art that inspires you or where's the, I, I, I'm, I'm a fabric. Um, <laughs> I've never met fabric that I didn't like. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, I normally, there's some really fantastic, uh, fabric mills and outlets in North Carolina because we're a huge textile state and, um, 
the guild actually, Dara Mervine runs the culture high-end group and she gets together once a year and normally bundles everybody up in a van and we go around and look at the, you know, this is the mill that makes smocking or, you know, this is, you know, where they make linen or cotton. And it's a great education from older women, but I also like touching it. And I feel like if you're going to make art to wear it and it's going to be up against your body, it has to feel good. Mm -hmm. And then normally I'll go from there. So the most recent collection from this fall yeah. is the Women Are Heroes mm-hmm. collection. And you were inspired by actual women you yes. know, right? That was at, that was somewhat a response to the politics of the time. You know, we're kind of in a hard point in our co- country right now. And um, people are talking about, like, you know, where are women? What is women's roles? compared to men. We also did stuff for the Women's Theater Festival on gender equality. And um, I started interviewing women in podcasting because I go to art space on Thursdays. And I would ask them, selfishly, I did it for me. Mm. <laughs> because I, I was trying to figure out the truth of like, who am I making for? What actually would be meaningful to people? And, you know, I just started listening to artists. And um I asked them all three questions. If you've heard the podcast, you know, like, tell me about yourself, who inspires you and where are you going? And um, it was really fascinating because the I also interviewed some of the people where they didn't know, but, the, but they inspired each other. <laughs> and um, I sat there and I would listen to the podcast and I expected when I got started that people would pick very famous figures. And and there was a little bit of that, but um, there was this, who inspires you as the people, you know, like your mom, your sister, your grandmother, a coworker. It was very interesting where, especially the men where they would talk about who inspired them. My wife, one guy said his wife, um, but it wasn't the way people got to being inspired and the way people saw heroes was not in this perfect sense. Like, on TV as, you know, abstract, but you know, this is the, some, this is the person and they would pick small things like, Mm -hmm. like they did a painting that I really loved, or, you know, I saw this and it was in, it was a very small concrete thing. And it made, it's where the collection came from because I kind of pivoted and I took women who I knew and dressed them up as superheroes for a night because I was like, we walk around with superheroes all the time and we never think about it mm-hmm. because the idea that we have and the I feel like in this country right now, we're having this conversation where we're almost expecting women to be perfect to even accept them. And I don't think that's very healthy for us. One of the artists that I was with, um, Savannah Murphy, and she is a comic book artist, did some illustrations and she's the person who helped me with the sewing acts of kindness where we started it, where we just had this conversation about where things were in the country. And we, we kind of were like, that's not who we want to see ourselves as women. And I think by the end of the year, the sewing guild will have sewn almost 10,000 items for different charities in the area, which for Lark, (laughs) I didn't know how it would be response taken has been very positive. So wait, you co-founded Sewing Acts of Kindness? Yes, that was. I did not know that. Yeah. When was that? Um. Well, that was in January. Well, like in January when we were all starting about Debbie and Renee and I all sat down and we talked about it and we had tried something the year before and we were watching the way the conversation was going in the country. 
And um, we were like, do we want that to be the only voice out there? And I, I just wanted a more positive voice. Um, I have nieces and nephews, and I I can't really dictate what they see on the news or how they think about the politics of this nation right now. But I, I wanted to maybe give them hope. Mm-hmm. And that's that's all the collection was, was a little piece of hope. Here you go. <laughs> and what was the response from the people? Uh, so far, locally, it's been very positive. Um, and I've actually, I've gotten into New York stores and had some buyers. I, like, I would say professionally and from personal standpoint, it's been very well received. Um, I don't know that I'll ever be in the news or that, you know, I'm telling a very different narrative story. But, you know, the fact that we've gotten to make thousands of items and impact local charities and do some really amazing stuff is okay with me. Like, even if nobody cares, I got to tell that story. Right. And it was real. So you talk about I launched this collection. Yeah. And then it got into some stores. Like, how does that happen? There's a couple different ways. Um, Sometimes people ask you. Um, traditionally, you want the traditional answer? Sure. Okay. I'll take any answer because I don't, I don't know any <laughs> oh, um, Is it magic? Is it like, how no, does it happen? <laughs> no, I wish it was magic. Um, no, there's trade shows for the fashion industry. A lot of them are out of New York, Atlanta, and Miami. Um, some are actually out of Charlotte, North Carolina. And twice a year, there's a spring and a fall fashion show. So when you hear of Fashion Week, that's what they're doing. And people will go to the market and the buyers will go to the market. And you can either personally go as a fashion designer or you can have an agent, which most people have an agent and the agent will take about 3% of your overall sales, which makes them one of the best, like best investments ever Mm. (laughs) because it would save you tens and tens of thousands of dollars. And they will show you as part of the collection in their showroom. And uh, most of the New York buyers and showrooms are uh, by appointment only. Um, they normally will meet with store reps um, once a month, normally on a Tuesday, and then they place the orders. And then the next month, um, so the shop makes all the goods, and then the next month they place the next set of orders. And it, it's every six months. Oh, wow. Interesting. But it it's, gets you out of the hustle because I've tried online. It's very difficult to like most of the money I know, like 99% of the money I know is wholesale. Hmm. All right. Here's another Kind of creative process question. Oh gosh. <laughs> um, because I know that you have, you know, five billion ideas and you're always thinking of things that you might want to do, but because this is a like for profit business, yeah. When you're looking at a design, are you also thinking this might sell? Or is it purely like um intuition and it just happens to sell? Do you know oh, what I mean? Um, no, I wish it was that easy. Um to be honest. Sometimes I break the, when I was getting started, um, and Janie, one of the best designers I've ever worked for, she was, um, she's actually out of New York and she's probably one of the most finance. She was a woman. She's one of the rare female designers in the business. And she was making, uh, comfortably seven to eight figures a year wow. as a designer. And, uh, she had a 90, 10 rule, which is 90% of the time you create for someone else where, would someone else's life be better if I created this item for them? And it has to fill a need and it has to be something you could make. You Like if the shop can't cut and sew it, it wouldn't be useful to figure it out. Like I could do hand embroidered, whatever, you know, lame dresses, but I don't think my shop can handle that. 
Um, we do a lot of, you know, ready to wear. Um, and then the 10% that she would just throw in wild cards. She would pick items that were exceedingly beautiful for her soul that she felt added something to the line. So 90% of it would be there to sell and 10% of it would be just for beauty's sake. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was that was very smart. Mm. So what is the collection that you're working on for the spring? Oh, um, well, the next one, I have a friend, uh, Roy, who he does British tailoring and, you know, we're kind of having a very conservative motion toward, and I think that women's power suiting and um, workwear will be the next trend. So a lot of it is finding power and kind of helping women mindfully pick pieces that would maybe help them have successful business deals. And uh, it takes a lot of traditional British tailoring and just kind of taking a a twist on that. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of androgyny in the marketplace coming in. And if you've ever watched like 1980 rock glam, um, like the Eurythmics, yeah. I, I think we're going to see some of that again. Things will like, unlo- that's what I'm expecting for the next decade is we're going to see a lot of androgyny. I mean, I grew up in the eighties. It's going to, it's coming back, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. It's kind of, it's, I have mixed feelings on it because I live like I'm like, oh, I've already seen that. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I lived that. Oh my gosh. We'll see how it goes. Uh chainmail is one of the big trends for spring, which I think will be interesting. Chainmail? Yeah. Yeah. On clothing? Yes, on women's clothing. Oh wow. Yeah. Well, you're seeing the reaction to I mean, fashion follow is inspired by politics. And right. when you have a very big pull to the right, then the clothing becomes much more like armor and woven instead of knits. And you see it become much more crisp and tailored. Oh, that's so interesting. So that means a fairly quick turnaround though. I mean, Mm -hmm. if, if fashion is so responsive to the current political and cultural trends, Mm -hmm. that doesn't leave a lot of time for, you're not sort of percolating on something that you might make seven years from now. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, no. Um, they say in the U.S. domestically, um, they'll, you. when I worked, I've worked in places where we literally designed a collection in a day. That was Sears one time. Um, but most of the time, it's about four weeks. And six months, six months, I think, is more reasonable. Hmm. But you're always kind of looking ahead, like... Spring would be like is in the fall for the six months ahead. And Mm -hmm. then fall is for spring. So the next one will be probably like mid-February and that will be for fall 2019. Okay. So it's, it's always at least six months ahead. How do people find your clothing? Most of it's word of mouth. Um, I worked in the business, um, I guess now like 20 years and um, did sales and then I did manufacturing and most of clients or people who, you know, I did a design for or a friend did a design for. I keep thinking that maybe by the time this podcast is live, I need to polish the website some more. But online is, it's doing better. And I would say like, we certainly had like Instagram has really gotten good this year. But wholesale still has, you know, like the the million dollar orders that you hear placed are placed in wholesale. Mm-hmm. And if I wanted to go to a store and find something, what would mm-hmm. I? How would I do that? Well, we have a list on the website, and it's the stockist. And most of what we do is that is still where you just go in and you walk in the store um, and do luxury stuff, which is does very well with a lot of high end boutiques and um, art galleries, museums. We started probably like when we were first getting started. 
uh, we started and we had Artemat. And uh, if you've ever, if you're an artist and you're getting started in your craft and you want to get into some stores on the wholesale end and you don't have the money for a trade show, that is the guy to go talk to. And he's out of Winston-Salem. Um, and that's how we got in a lot of our stores at the beginning. Artemat. Artemat. Okay. This is like a money thing maybe. Mm-hmm. So... I was designing in the factories and I couldn't, I didn't have a, you know, house page was a a brand of two people. So, you know, nobody wanted to talk to you because, you know, like I was doing pattern making and, you know, we would cut an order and Hanes would be 200,000 t-shirts. And, you know, we were like, we can make 50. (laughs) And that was like, shut down. (laughs) And, um, so anyway, so, um, one of my buddies that I was sharing an office with, he was a surface designer. His name's Matt Santelli and he was out of Winston-Salem and he's like, there's this guy, you know, and he, he, he vends like art in high end museums and like the Smithsonian. And he's like, you, you should apply to that. And I was like, what the heck is Okay. Cause I didn't want to keep working, like getting other people BMWs. Mm. I went ahead and got, went online and it's artemat and i think that org what it is is um it's small pieces of art that are affordable and it's series of 50 it vends from the artemat um machines for five dollars each and um the artist keeps half of it and then the art venue keeps half of it the major thing that was so advantageous for us is clark is in a ton of um art galleries and museums that really support artists and many of the opportunities that we've had come around have been because somebody picked up a small piece of art. Um, We did a lot of leather bracelets for a while. We've done a lot of collections with him and someone would see our art. And then a, like an art gallery, like some of our art gallery shows have come about because somebody went and bought a small piece of $5 art. Hmm. If you do, that would be, that was, that would might be a very good practical advice to the listener. He's, he's, you can still go online and you have to do a prototype kit, which I think is $10. Maybe it's 12 now. You just go online, get a prototype kit, send it in and do 50 in a series. And that would be my advice. What do you think is a major misconception that people have about the work that you do? Well, I think we talked about this a little bit in that it's art to wear. So it actually goes on a person's body. It's not something that sits in an art gallery necessarily. Mm-hmm. I, we have done art gallery shows and some of our pieces sell for, I mean, art to wear goes quite expensive. Um, I think the most expensive piece that I ever helped was Hertzberg Furs. We had a 225000 sable fur coat that we one time did for a client out of South Carolina. So it can, art to wear gets quite expensive. And uh, we've shown in galleries, but traditionally, clothing is worn. And so the way it fits on a person and moves is some of the most important things that, you know, a table does not have to, like a table doesn't have to move. (laughs) Right. If you could go back in time and talk to your past self, what would you say? What advice would you say? I would have told myself to believe in myself sooner. I spent about 10, 10 years in retail, actually, before I worked up the courage to do what I saw my grandfather doing and try and sell any of my designs. And I wish I'd had more courage to do that sooner. Hmm. I was like mid twenties before I really got up the nerve to like, and I cut the cord very apparently. And it, as an adult now, I really did not have to get, I don't know that I needed to go to the extreme links that I did at that point. 
Like I probably could have edged in a little bit slower. How long were you overlapping, like working full time and also having a business? Like I cashed in my 401k and I just worked hard at a tech shop probably for about a year and a half, maybe. And then I got a full-time job offer for some of my design work. So, and then probably that the past two or three years um, really kind of cut the cord on it, but they've overlapped for a while. Mm -hmm. And I would say that that was the hardest part maybe that I didn't figure out. Like if I had figured out that I could have run both at the same, it was utterly exhausting and I wish there'd been a financial safety net sooner, but there was no difference in me doing that in my late twenties. I could have easily done it in my teens or in college, mm-hmm. <laughs> like all that exhaustion of essentially having a baby company, which they say is four or five years that I, I ate that time. I could have started it sooner. Yeah. Thank you so much. Awesome. For the conversation. I hope it was helpful. It was wonderful. I appreciate it so much. And it's been a great learning opportunity for me. So (laughs) thank you again. No worries. Artist Soapbox is a listener-supported podcast. Please support the podcast via our Patreon page, patreon.com slash artistsoapbox. For more information, go to our website, artistsoapbox.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. All of this information is in the show notes. Artist Soapbox music is composed by Bart Matthews. Thanks so much, and we're out. 